chapters 4 through 6 describes how we live in our world as a result of what God has done. And so we went further to identify three key words. The first one is sit. And sit, the sitting, being seated together with Christ, describes our position in God as a result of our union with him. And then the second key word is the word walk, which we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. And by the way, in the book of Ephesians, that word walk is used eight times from chapter 4 all, all the way. Eight times. Okay? So, but the word walk connotes for us the idea of us how we live in the world, our lifestyle, our conduct our behavior in the world or on the earth as a result of what God has done for us. Amen? And the last word is from the book of Ephesians chapter 6. And it talks about standing. Amen? I think that's Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. We, we get there tonight at some point. So, so standing. And standing describes for us what our attitude should be concerning the enemy. So we sit we walk and we stand. And I emphasize that unless you are seated, you find walking and standing almost impossible. In fact, for most of our Christian experience, the struggles we have, the challenges we face, are as a direct result of us not having entered into that place of rest or security, or confidence, or dependence on what God has done for us. Amen? Amen. So, this evening, let's, let's read, um, uh, let, let me go to Ephesians chapter 1 again, um, chapter, chapter 4, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4, and let me read verse 1 and 2, and then we're going to just dive in from there. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I, therefore... The prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Verse 2 says, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. So for me, in my experience, when I began to understand that grace message, when I, when, I, when I really began to understand it, the first changes that came into my life has to do with the relationship that I have with my wife, my children, my immediate community, and the way I see people. This is huge. And this is the point Paul is making. Because remember, we were reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. Meaning, the enmity that was between us and God was breached. Meaning, the fact that we were separated and away from God, Jesus came and through the power of the cross, breached that gap. He brought us, who are far off, near back to God through the power of his blood. But that is just one 
part of the equation. His intention is not just to bring us to God and just leave us packed there. Yes, we are now with God. Thank goodness we'll go to heaven and be with God forever. But the second part of that equation is he, Jesus, wants to live the life that he lived then, now, in through us. Did you get that? That's the second part of this equation. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, what kind of life did Jesus live? Look at what Paul said. With all loneliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. What, did Jesus do all of those things? Yes. Yes. So he said, listen, the deal is I want to live my life through you. Your, when we began these teachings, we said that the book of Ephesians is the one book that allows us to see the seven aspects of the church. And we, we listed all of them. One of those aspects is the fact that, number one, that we're a family of God, we're the kingdom of God, we're children of God, and then, of course, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the dwelling place of God. That is huge. In fact, you must understand, two people are vying to, to use your body. Two entities. God, who has a rightful ownership to your body, wants to live there, wants to function there, wants to walk through your body. And then, of course, Satan, who does not have the right to your body, but through the doors and the openings you and I give him, comes to pack there. He has no right to it. But you can definitely invite him. In fact, you can bring him to your living room, to your bedroom, to your dining table, and just spread the table for him and say, sit down, let's, let's talk. How? By your attitudes. By the things you and I say and do. Especially the, 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 the real key, the word anger. The way some of us get angry, almost to the point of possession. Anger is the, is the access key or the password to the devil being in your room. That's why the Bible says be angry and sin not. Oh, I'm just already getting off track there. Because you see, the issue of anger, anger itself is not the emotion that is bad. God gives me and you the emotion or anger. However, when Paul dealt with it in Ephesians chapter 4, he said be angry but sin not. Okay, let, let, me, let me, and I need to move on. Let me tell you what hunger does. You drive cars. On your dashboard, there are all kinds of lights. Okay? So you see, <laughs> praise God. I saw somebody, but I won't, I won't, I won't talk about it. <laughs> so, so, so your car has all these, all these lights on the dashboard. Okay? When the red light that says check engine comes on, what does that tell you? It tells you that something is wrong under the hood. You need to pay attention. Well, at that point, you can go to the shop, you can go to, to take your car in and have it checked out. Or you can ignore it. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure there are one or two people here that's ignored. 
But you realize that when you ignore it, you do that at your own what? Peril. That's right. Okay? So the red light is an indicator that something is wrong under the hood. What the red light does on your dashboard for your car, anger does for you in your emotion. Anger is a check relationship, something's going on here. At that point, you can chill and take note and correct whatever is wrong. And when the Bible says, be angry and sin not, the sin comes in when you allow your anger to take over you and cause your next steps. When you make decisions about your next steps on the basis of the anger, you are done. The enemy's got you. Now, of course, you can reverse that. You can repent of that and move on. But I'm just telling you, when you start making decisions on the basis of anger, you get into sin. Okay? So the point I'm making is Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Please give that to me in the Amplified. Romans 5, 10. The one part of the equation is we are reconciled with God, but the Bible says much more. If we had been reconciled by his death, how much more we will be saved by his life. He wants to save us. Now, when you say save, save from what? From the dominion of sins. So sins do not have, do not just run shot over us. So Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, it is much more certain now that we are reconciled, which is the starting point, that we shall be saved daily. Did you say that? Daily delivered from sin's dominion through his resurrection life. He comes to live in us. And when he comes to live in us, his goal is that he now will live his life through us. So it's up to you and I to allow him to do so. So the entire chapters 4 and 5 begins to address the daily things that you and I do. I was telling you earlier that the first thing that happened to me is my, the, way I, the way I relate to my wife. All of a sudden, all the irritation is not nearly as irritable as it used to be. It's true. Now, does that mean, does that mean uh, she became an angel? In the, in the, no, that's not the issue. That's not the issue. The point is, whether she's an angel or not, I had to make a decision that I'm going to let the Jesus in the inside of me respond to whatever I say, rather than mean react. React in your flesh. Respond in the spirit. And the more you consciously do that on a daily basis, what begins to happen is your partner or the people that you are, that you are dealing with, they begin to see and they begin to adjust. So I'm saying to us, there is no such thing as being filled with the God's grace and we remain the way, we will remain the same and keep on doing the same old things. Something is wrong with that equation. So Paul immediately after having told us all the blessings and the position that we have in Christ begins to address relationships. He addresses five major categories of relationship in this writing. Number one, relationship with your neighbors. 
Number two, relationship with other believers. It's, 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 it's absolutely, it's, I don't know if we really understand what it does to Jesus. To say me, you, and all of us here are believers in the same body, in the same family, and yet we don't talk to one another. Something is wrong. Because God sees us as one family. And so, so in my family, okay, so I have a wife, I have three children, and we're all in the same house, and something happens, and we're not talking to one another because my son did something to my daughter. That, that's absurd. Especially when we carry the same spirit. So Paul begins to address these relationships. With neighbors, with other believers, husband and wife, parents and their children, and last one, in the workplace. Because in those five areas, that's in your entire life. So the idea here is, this grace of God that God has expanded on you must manifest itself in any of these five places. And to the degree that that's not happening, in that, to that degree, to that extent, the life of Jesus is being quenched. Are you hearing what I'm saying to you? Yes. Give me Galatians chapter 2.20. Galatians 2.20. These relationships I mentioned, I believe, last night are like laboratories that God created for us to grow in. To teach us, number one, about himself and then to put his character on display for everybody to see. That's what he wants to do. Because me and you are the written epistle read by all men. So he places us in these different relationships, these different uh, situations. So he can use that to teach us about who he is and then to display to the world what God is all about. So Galatians 2.20. This is Paul talking. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Now, do you, do, do you watch that? He's saying, it's not him that lives. That's my problem. That's your problem. We are still living. Paul said, it is no longer I. Because if you ever get into any discussion or any debate or any argument or any uh, tough situation, please, ah, that's just where I feel. That's the problem. I should not be feeling anything. I should only be an expression of somebody else that's in me. That's the problem. And you need to begin to see from tonight as the problem. You should stop listening to I. I will take you to where you don't want to go. And it will keep you where you don't want to be. So, so Greg, you need to stop talking. <laughs> I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. So now, Paul, if you are not the one living, who is living? Christ. 
but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God. Now this is huge. Because everything we've been talking about from Sunday is done or received by faith. Your position, your blessings. Everything is by faith. God has done it, but you have to believe it to enter into it. So what Paul is saying is every given situation that happens to him, okay, I'm crucified. It's not me that's living. It's Christ that's living in me. But there are certain things that happen to me on a daily basis. Man, I don't like this. No, you don't like it, but you, you, you submit to it by the faith in the Son of God. You allow the Son of God that you trust and depend on to say, Jesus, man, I don't see what you're saying. I, listen, I'm, I'm walking with you blindly in this thing. I have no idea where this is. But just trusting him that the outcome is going to be fine. That's what Paul is saying. So I want you to understand that everything we have in the kingdom is by faith. Given to us by grace, but must be received and appropriated by faith. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I've got to stop there for a minute. The reason I can trust Jesus to live through me is because I'm assured of his love. If there's a deficiency in me believing how he loves me, I won't follow him. But when I'm secured in his love for me, the love that allowed him to choose me before time began. The love that made him destine me to be his son when I was undone. The love that made him graft me into his own family and say, you are my child. When I believe and receive that love, it changes the equation. That's what Paul is telling us. So, let's read another scripture. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 9. Ephesians 5, 9. Okay, let's start from verse 8. Ephesians 5, 8. Ephesians 5, 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. Okay, so how do I do that, Paul? Verse 9. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Ah. So the idea here is, if I'm going to walk in this earth, if I'm going to live on the earth and, and display the character of God and display God to my world, God is looking for me to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. The entire walking section of this whole book has to do with the fruit of the Spirit. Are you hearing me? That's what it's addressing. How we relate to one another. How we love one another. How we, how we consider one another. How we help one another. How we forgive one, one another. On and on and on and on. The entire chapter 4 and 5. That's what it's addressing. Now, Let's go to John chapter 15. So we see how this really works. 
So Paul is helping us to understand that the body of Christ is not something that's remote or unreal. It's not something that's just expressed in heavenly terms only, the body of Christ. It is very present, it is practical, and it is finding real test in our conduct and our relationships every day. Amen? So in John chapter 15, this is the best way to really see how this happens. Because remember, we kept on saying, we have to be seated in order to walk. So John 15, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. On, go on. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, it takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, it prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Go on. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So all of you, you are born again, you are clean. So the issue is not being born again. You are already born again. You are sound. You are going to heaven. That's no question about that. Verse 4. Abide in me. You are seated with him. But that's one part of the equation. And I in you. That's the other part of the equation. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This is a situation. This is an issue. This is a problem. We are called to bear fruit. But we cannot bear fruit unless we abide in him and he abides in us. None of us, through our own effort, our own uh, strength, can bring forth the fruit that will be delightful to God. It's not possible. It's not possible. Verse 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now, let, let me explain that in a minute. Because I don't want you to think, okay, I abide in him and he abides in me, I ask for, I, I ask for three Rolls Royce. <laughs> and it shall be done unto me. The assumption is when you abide in him and he abides in you, your desires will be the same. Your desire will be the same. If anything else, he's going to be sending you to the mission field. <laughs> Some of you are really saying, God, no, don't count on me. About that. <laughs> Take me out of that equation. <laughs> Verse 8. By these, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So I said to you last night, and I'm saying again tonight, under no circumstance, do you determine a person's spirituality by how well they preach, how well they pray, or how well they praise? The only way you know how spiritual anybody is, the fruit they bear. Their character. The display of the fruit of God in their lives. By this shall men know that you are my disciples. So the question tonight is, how do I stay connected to the divine to produce fruit? Because it's good to understand, all, to hear all of these things. Okay, I need to abide. He abides in me. I abide in him. Blah, 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 blah. But how do I do it? How? What, 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 is the, what is the mechanism? What is the dynamics of making this happen in my life? I'm tired of living day to day to day to day. And I'll say, okay, I'm going to love my wife. I'll say it at 8 o'clock in the morning. By 9.30, I'm upset with her. Am I the only one that does that? Well, the rest of you guys, God will help you. <laughs> no. 
Because if, if in your own flesh you purpose to do that, and I'm sure you're sincere when you said it, but God wants you to know that your sincerity is not enough to overcome your flesh. Case in point, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus told Peter, he said, Peter, well, first of all, he says to Peter that he's going to go to the cross. Peter said, no, it will never happen. What do you mean, go to the cross? I'm here. I'm your bodyguard. I'm your mega. I'll make sure nobody can take you to, take you to the cross. <laughs> Peter, is, I mean, Peter is like many of us. <laughs> Peter was bragging. Are you kidding me? Nobody would. They don't dare come near to you. I'm your PA. They won't touch you. I'll protect you. No, nobody will take you. Jesus looked at him and said, ah, you're sincere. But the truth is, Peter, before the cock rose, you will have denied me three times. In his flesh, he meant what he said. He did not want Jesus to be killed. And he thought that he could do something to prevent that. But Jesus, knowing the limit of man's strength, Peter, you are saying this now when the conditions are right. When you find yourself in a compromising situation where you're weak and fearful, you don't, you don't know what will come out of your mouth. It's just like a guy saying, okay, you just ate a nice T-bone steak at uh, Long, Long uh, where's that place? Longhorns, Long Long nice, nice T-bone steak and mashed potatoes. And, uh, ah, so I'm going to take a seven-day fast. <laughs> The, the T-bone is talking in your stomach. <laughs> I'm going to go on a seven-day fast, man. Praise God. <laughs> the T-bone is speaking. You talk about the seven-day fast when, when you're really hungry, when, when hunger is really, really dealing with you. It's a different story. <laughs> so the point I'm making is, in our strength, we know what to do. We make commitments, but we find out very quickly that what we said we're going to do, we have no strength to do it. And the fact that we have no strength to do it does not mean that God is going to change the plan. He still has a demand. There are still things God wants to see happen. And so let me read a couple of passages and then I'm going to come back and deal with this. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Verses 38 through 48. Just so you can see how Jesus and Paul really harmonizes. Because Paul tells us all these things. If I, let, me, let me read some of the things Paul says that should not happen. Uh, in chapters 4 through 6, he says, Putting away falsehood, speaking the truth, each one with his neighbor, be ye not angry and sin not, steal no more, let all bitterness be put away from you, be ye kind, forgiving each other, subjecting yourselves to one another, provoke not, be obedient, forbearing, threatening. I mean, nothing could be more realistic than this list of imperatives. Who in their own strength can do this? Nobody. But Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I'll tell you not to resist an evil person. Hello? This is Jesus speaking. Don't resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right side of the cheek, turn the other one to him. Hello? Any takers? <laughs> bah! Okay, let me give you the other one. I really enjoyed that one. Try the left side. 
anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asked you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I said to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Go ahead. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Man, tax collectors, man, they might be some real. <laughs> Those guys was his special group of people. <laughs> Verse 48. Ah, verse 48. Verse 48. Okay, let me read it. Oh, okay. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your, hev- your Father in heaven is perfect. Can you give me that verse 48 in the message translation? Message. Verse 48. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? <laughs> Any run of the mill sinner does that. This message transition is something else. I mean, <laughs> you know, in a word, what I'm saying is grow up. The problem is how? How are we going to grow up? You are kingdom subjects. Now live like it. How? How are we going to live like it? Leave out your God-created identity. You see what I'm saying? Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives toward you. I said it last night, I'm going to say it again. Grace-filled people are always gracious. Grace-filled people are always gracious going to be gracious. Why? Because you recognize that you received something that you could not earn. You received something you were undeserving. You received something you did not merit. And therefore, as a result of that, you are quickly humbled and are gracious towards those that may have done something uh, wrong against, against you. So there may be some of us here tonight or some listening by video, you've been wronged, perhaps terribly wronged, and you cannot bring yourself to forgive. You felt you were in the right, and your friend or enemy's action has been wholly unjust. You know from the scriptures and what we've read tonight that to love them may be ideal but you find it impossible to do so. How do we get over that? What is the answer to our problem of God's exacting demands? Let me give you the secret. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 verse 20. 
How do we overcome this obstacle? How? How do we live at this life? Galatians chapter 3 verse 20. No. No, Ephesians 3.20. I'm sorry. Ephesians 3.20. Ephesians 3.20. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. How? According to the power that works in us. The only way you and I are going to live this life, the only way Jesus is going to live through us, is according to the power that works in us. It's not going to be by might, nor by power, but by his spirit. Wow, you guys thought I was going to give you some formula. Three steps to living victoriously. <laughs> there are no three steps, there's only one step. Jesus and him crucified. Another scripture in Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. Colossians 1, 29. Colossians 1, 29. Because in the matter of two or three scriptures, let everybody be confirmed. Colossians 1, 29. To this end, I also labor. How do you labor? Striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Who's doing the work? Him. 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 Just remember, the, story, the, the, the John 15, I didn't really break that down for you. The, the vine and the branches. The branch is not laboring to produce fruit because the branch is attached to the vine it receives the saps or the nutrients from the, from the vine automatically because it abides, it just happens. So what I'm saying to us is you and I need to become saturated with the presence of God in our life. Yeah. We need to become saturated with it. Um... Ah, yeah. So the secret strength of the life of a Christian, it, it sees its rest in Christ. Your power to live the Christian life is derived from your God-given position. Period. We sit forever with Christ that we may walk continuously before men. And once you forsake for a moment your place of rest in him, immediately you become tripped. Did you hear that? <laughs> you sit with him so you can walk with man. You sit with him so you can walk with man. But the moment you get up from him, you are tripped. You are tripped. Okay, so there are times you and I, maybe you get into nice worship, you get into some great Bible study, you feel like you're on top of the world. You can walk on, on air. Anybody ever felt like that? Why, why do you feel that so? Because you just felt saturated with the presence of God. 
you got in the word, you got in the praise, and, and the presence of God was strong in your life. In that moment, you can, you can walk through you can walk through the ocean. You are confident that nothing is going to touch you. But the moment you watch two episodes of House of Cards, <laughs> and 24, and then you top that up with scandal. Ah. Oh, you know, well done. <laughs> Hello? Yes. The same thing that threatened you when you were able to walk through the cloud. All of a sudden, you feel like Samson. <laughs> because the presence of God is not as strong in your life any longer. Yes. This is the reason the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, that we should be filled with the Spirit of God wherein as in excess. Have you ever read that scripture? Okay, let's read it again. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 18. Ephesians 5, 18. It says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Look at the contrast the apostle is making there. When a person is drunk, when wine has filled them, what happens? Some of those guys that you see, see in this, you, tomorrow there's, there's NFL playoffs tomorrow, you're going to see them. It's five degrees below zero. They take off their shirt, they take, they, they are, their bare chest is out there, they have cool beer in their hand, they are, getting, they are drinking. And you say, are these people mad? If it's five degrees below zero, you're going to freeze to death. They don't know that. Why? Because they are filled with something else. And what they are filled with is telling them it's all right. The cold is not a problem. A man is drunk, wastes urine on himself on the floor, and sits in it, wallow in his own urine. It doesn't bother them. You that is not drunk, walk by them and say, Are these guys crazy? You walk on the other side of the road and say, wow, that guy's, these guys are really crazy. They don't feel the craziness. Why? They are filled with something. And what they are filled with has adequately prepared them for the madness they are going through. <laughs> so Paul draws a parallelism. He's talking to people that lived in the city, officials. They understand drinking and reverie and all that nonsense. He says, instead of being filled with wine, where you lose your mind and do crazy things, be filled with the Spirit of God instead. Because when you're filled with the Spirit of God, what wine does to a heathen that makes him turn off his head and just follows the dictates of the wine he has drunk, that's exactly what the Spirit of God does to you, but in a good way. Do you understand what I'm saying? Pastor Tristan said it best uh, a few weeks ago when she, was giving, when, when she gave a message and talked about the pregnant woman. That when a woman is pregnant, for some reason, by virtue of the fact that she's pregnant, there are certain things she stops doing. The baby the woman is carrying, the, 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 the awareness of the fact that she's carrying new life, a baby in her belly, dictates, determines, 
certain actions you can partake in and others you can't. Amazing. So the Bible says, be filled with the Spirit. And when you and I, like the pregnant woman, becomes aware that we are carrying something inside of us, we allow that which we're carrying to tell us what to do, where to go, how to get there, and when to stay there for. That's what Jesus told Paul, uh, not, not Paul, Peter, in John chapter 20. He said, when you are young, you went whatever you want to go. You did whatever you want to do. He said, but the day is coming. Another will hold you by the hand and lead you to places you don't want to go. Who is that person? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to take me and you by the hand. Yeah. Literally. And tell us, that man you don't like, love on him. Mm-hmm. That woman you can't stand, show kindness. That brother you've been running away from, stay poor. The Holy Spirit wants to lead us in a Christ life. And we all have the Spirit of God. Let me read a couple of scriptures and I'm going to have to move on. First John chapter 4, verse 13. First John 4, 13. Talk about abiding. First, ah, man, there's so much stuff. Oh. Hmm. First John 4, 13. Thank you. By this we know that we abide in him. How? And he in us. How? How do we know we abide? And that he is in us. Because he has given us his spirit. So no one should live here tonight wondering, thinking, do I, do, uh, uh, how do I abide? You're, it's, you are abiding because he's giving you the spirit. His spirit is in you. The moment you got born again, that spirit checks in. And this is not Marriott, it's not checking out. It's checking for good. Give me verse 15, the same chapter. Verse 15, 1 John 4, 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So how do we know we abide? Number one, he has given us the spirit. How do we know, number two, because we've believed that Jesus is the Son of God? Actually, the living, living Bible translation says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Son of God. But this is good enough. So we know that we abide. So the issue of when Jesus said, if you abide in me um, or I, uh, I you, that's settled. It's settled. You have the Spirit of God, you abide in. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you abide in. Give me verse 16, 1 John 4, 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. How do I know that I'm abiding? Number one, I have his spirit. Number two, I believe. Number three, I trust in the love of God. Settled. Settled. We are bad. And therefore, you know the Spirit of God is in you. So what I'm saying to you is in those tough moments, before you blow your fuse when you're angry, check with the Holy Spirit. What shall I do? Shall I slap him or her? <laughs> yeah, because that's who you are. So, maybe, maybe, who knows? He may tell you to slap. Say, no, don't slap. Okay, okay. <laughs> Just check in. Because you know, He's the landlord. Yes. You just have the key to the house. He's the landlord. So ask your landlord. 
How, how, how do we deal with this situation? You can answer, split second. Split second. Listen, if we don't practice these things, we will not get a result. We can sit here until 2040. Lesson after lesson after lesson after lesson. Nothing will change. All God is saying, try me. Try me. Just ask the Holy Spirit. And then you, you do what it says. Now, Ephesians chapter 5 verse... Uh, Verse 19, no, verse 15. I've got to make a shift now to get to the third point, to the standing, but let's, let's deal with this. Ephesians 5, verse 15. Now, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Next verse. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now this is, God help me to explain this accurately. This is critical. These verses address our up and down syndrome in living a life. Some days I'm hot. I can't do anything wrong. I'm loving, I'm kind, I'm forgiving, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And some other days you're in the dumps. You're just, I mean, we can't even get you, we can't use a tractor to get you out of the basement. You are just in the dump. This is what's happening here. Paul says we should redeem the time because the days are evil. Okay. So, go back to verse 15. Let me, let me look at that refrain one more time. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Go on again. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. So you will notice in those two verses, there's an association between the idea of time and the difference between wisdom and foolishness. It says, walk as wise, redeeming the time, be not foolish. Now, there are two other passages that help to explain this one. Give me Matthew chapter 25. And please just bear with me because this is, this is very important you get this. Matthew chapter 25, from verse 1. Matthew 25, from verse 1. Yeah. Then the kingdom of heaven. Ah, this is so long. Lord Jesus. Okay. <laughs> then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins. We know the story, the ten virgins. Who took their lambs and went out to meet the bridegroom? Go ahead. Now five of them were wise. Remember what we just read in Ephesians? The wise and the foolish. Okay. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Next verse. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. 
But while the bridegroom delayed, they all slumbered and slept. First of all, you notice all ten were virgins. Is that correct? So nobody's going to hell here, by the way, okay? I, I don't know what you've been taught, you know. The, the foolish virgins are not going to hell. They are still virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. Okay. At midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, no, lest there should be not enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came, also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, as surely I say to you, I do not know you. Next verse. Look at verse 13. Key. Watch therefore. Say that with me. Say, watch therefore. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, how does this connect to Ephesians chapter 5, what we just read? Ah, I need to read another passage of scripture and then I'll break it down. Please just bear with me. Revelation chapter 14. It's going to make sense in a minute. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him, 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. This is what the, this, this is what the Jehovah's Witness said. These are the only guys that's going to heaven. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. Because if that's the case, they, they, they miss it themselves. Yeah, but we're going to break it down in a minute. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpies, harpies playing their harps. And they sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed among men. Now, this is the key. Being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Verse 5. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Okay. For sure, we have too many scriptures that assure us that God, who began a good work in us, will finish the work. Amen? We are confident of this thing, that he who began a good work in us will perfect it on the day of Jesus. We know that there are no limits to God's power. Okay? So, in this passage that I just read, there is no... There's nothing being said about anybody being lost. That's not the issue. But the point, of the, the point of the matter is, especially in this last passage, in Revelation chapter 14, the issue of the 144,000 redeemed. What is that talking about? And how does that connect to what we are reading? When I first came to the U.S., a long, long, long time ago, my first job in college in Melbourne, Florida, was in Orange Grooves. That was the only job we could get back in those days. So they come pick, up, pick us up in school, they take us to Orange Grooves, and we'll be plucking oranges. <laughs> you guys looking at me. 
You came, you came at a good time, don't worry. <laughs> Man. And so, so they drive up there, and, and, and when you get to these orange groups, you just see a sea of green. Everything is just green. Oranges on the trees. But every now and then, in the mix of this sea of green oranges, you see specks of light golden ripe oranges. Are you following me? So we will go first and begin to pluck the golden light, the ones that ripe first. We pluck them immediately. So what's the point here? What's the point that, this, that uh, John is making here? The issue of the 144,000 redeemed, they, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, they are the what? First fruits. The first fruit and the rest of the harvest is the same crop. Because even though we pluck those light golden oranges first, in another three weeks or four weeks, the rest of the farms will become also ripe. So the issue of the first food is the issue of time, not quality. <coughs> That's why they are called first fruits, meaning they arrived first. But he did not condemn the rest of the harvest. In time, the rest of the harvest will also be ripe. And the quality is the same because the crop is the same. They just ripe at different times. So back to the ten virgins. Back to Ephesians chapter 5. The ten virgins were told, five were wise and five are foolish. Again, all ten are virgins. So the quality, just like the harvest, is the same. Are you following me? The difference, again, is what? The time. Five had extra oil. And when the time of need came, they were prepared. The other five did not have extra oil. When the time of need came, they were not ready. They had to go out and fetch, and they missed the opportunity. So Paul tells me, and you redeem the time, for the days are evil. Why? If you don't get filled with the Spirit of God now, when you need the Spirit of God tomorrow or next week, you'll be on empty. You redeem the time for your time of need. You don't wait until crisis starts. And then, hold Hey, give him karate. It's madness. It's madness. That's what they're doing in some prayer, place, prayer meetings. You wait till the crisis strikes. Give the devil a hoppercut. Give him another one. Hey. What is this? <laughs> For some of you, some people really pray like that. 
All of that is happening. Why? They were not prepared in a day of peace. They were foolish in not preparing a little every day. And they want to prepare, want to prepare big time in one day. It doesn't happen like that. You still have the spirit, yes. They were still virgins. They were just not filled. Do you see the implication? So process redeem the time. Don't be foolish. Don't wait, God forbid, until you get sick. Don't wait, God forbid, until you, uh, something happens with your business. Don't wait until you have to go to school and do an exam. Don't wait until something happens with your, with your parents. Don't wait until something happens with your children. Don't wait until something happens with your spouse. No, prepare daily, daily. Be filled continually so that when the need arises, you have the force to meet it. Does that make any sense? So that's the difference between the days me and you are up. So that day, maybe you, you soaked yourself in the word of God, you recognized the spirit of God in you, and you went out there, and you were you are able to face anything. Nothing that happened there faced you, because what? You were prepared. You were wise, redeeming the time. But other times, you were filled with scandal. So when the crisis knocks on the door, it's only if you appropriate answers. It's trouble. You can't do that. You and I don't have that luxury. That's what Paul is telling us. Amen? Amen. Good. Can we just stand up and just, just stretch yourself a minute and then I'm going to switch gears and move on to the next. <laughs> so that's the walking element. That's the walking element. Hallelujah. Touch yourself. And then in a couple of minutes, I'm going to start the last part and then we're going to be on our way. Hallelujah. You can send them in through Facebook, WhatsApp, and uh, of course, we'll be in service on Sunday morning and we'll, we'll take care of those questions as much as we can. So now we're going to go to the last part of this teaching. So we've learned how to sit. We've learned how to walk. Now we need to learn how to stand. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Every Christian experience begins with sitting, leads to walking, but it does not end with this. Every Christian must also learn to stand against the enemy. Each one of us must be prepared for the conflict. We must know how to sit with Christ in the heavenly places. We must know how to walk worthy of him in the world but we must also know how to stand before the enemy. So now this segment, we're going to address our ongoing conflict with the enemy. Now, it is very interesting, as I looked at this book, the entire book of Ephesians were 155 verses. 
Ephesians chapter 1 through 6. 155 verses. So when it comes to the issue of warfare and conflict, out of 155 verses, Paul addresses it in 10 verses. What does that tell you? Does that give any message? Does that tell you anything? Let me repeat that again. The entire book is only 155 verses. One, five, five. But when it comes to the issue of conflict, he spends only 10 verses on it. It's very simple. Number one. Exactly. Number one. Paul is saying to us, it is important that we understand warfare. It is important that we understand that we must engage in it and be in it. But it should never be a thing that overwhelms us. So much so, he only gave you 10 verses. Because the truth is, if he gave you 200 verses on warfare and you don't learn how to sit and you are not walking, you won't be able to stand. So what Paul is saying is, the battle is almost won by your position and the walk you walk and the rest is just history. Are you hearing me? But unfortunately, when you look at churches today and ministries and even us as individuals, you could not tell that because 90% of our prayer time is on warfare. 90%. When are we praying about our position? Thanking God for that. Because actually, the first three chapters of Ephesians, I have a chart on it. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to put it on the website. It, it talks about how the first three chapters emphasizes the scripture, what God has done, and what we're supposed to do. And really, the first three chapters, there's nothing for us to do except for except to praise. Thanks and praise. Thanks and praise. Thanks and praise. That's it. The most powerful prayer you pray is a prayer of thanksgiving. Thanking him for what he has done for you. But the enemy don't want me and you to focus on that. He wants us to only focus on himself and become a distraction from the main things. So in Ephesians 6.10, finally, finally, my brothers, my sisters, be strong where? In the Lord. Our strength for conflict, for warfare, is found what? In the Lord, not anybody else. Man, we have a lot of prayer contractors. <laughs> Who will want you to look to them? But Paul tells you, don't look to me, Paul. No. Don't look to this man or this woman. Don't look to anybody. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Yes. So we need to resolve that. We need to settle that. As we engage in this conflict, the strength, the strategy, the power, it all comes from God. Read on, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. That's where the word stand comes, right there, that verse. Against the wiles or the devices or the schemes of the devil. 
So this is what's happening. God knows there's going to be conflict. And so for the conflict that he knows will be there, he's already given us ammunition, weapons, armor. He provided them. So the only thing he's asking you and I to do, put them on. You think you can do that? No, you guys are not following. <laughs> he's giving you what you need. He just says, put it on. Is that too much? No. No. Not if you want to leave. Not if you want to survive. Put on a whole armor that you may be able to stand against the wise of the enemy. So now, if I, don't, if I just put on some of it and not all, what will happen? You'll be exposed. Because it's telling you exactly. So this is where it comes to, we have to follow these instructions. He set everything up. Just imagine, remember the Israelites. We read the scripture last night. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, where he's given them cities that's already built. He's given them houses full of good things, and on and on and on. But yet, he still sends them to war. Right? He's already provided the cities and the houses and the vines and the wells. But now he says to them, you go get it. So what he did for them is what he's doing for us. In that sense. He's already made provision for everything we'll need for our conflict. He just says, now, Greg, can you put, can, can you put on your trousers, please? Can, can you just put on your jacket? Or do I have to come and dress you? Put it on yourself. So that's what he said. But he said, don't just put half of them on. Put on the whole armor. Verse 12. Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. I think that is very, very interesting. If the people will fight are in the heavenly places, why am I feeling it here? Now, that's a trick question. That's a trick question. The Bible is very clear that a battle is not against flesh and blood. And that the battle is in the heavenly places. So it's happening in heavenly places, but I'm feeling it in Lawrenceville. How is that possible? It is possible in the exact same way as God said, I have blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Oh my God. If the enemy from heavenly places can get to the earth and touch you, you would now think the blessings of God in heaven cannot touch you here on earth? So if you had any problems... Receiving these blessings in the heavenly places. Just understanding from the de demonic aspect. If you can't understand what God is doing, maybe, we, maybe you can understand what the devil is doing. Because you're having flat tires on a regular basis. Your car messes up. Your dog is sick. Somebody robs your house. Things are happening to you. And you say, how is this thing happening? God says, it's happening from the heavenly places. But those things that happen in the heavenly places have a manifestation in the earth. So please understand that when God said to me and you that we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, it's very real. It's very real. So in this verse 12 again, Paul wants you to know the attack 
you feel from your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your children, the misbehavior on your job, in your businesses. Even though the manifestation is on the earth, there's a spiritual entity behind it. So if something from the heavens is causing this things you are seeing, then how futile is it if you are just what you're seeing and not what's in the heavens? You, you, see, you see the issue? So your boss is just very mean every day. Nobody can please him or her. They're always demanding. And you almost run away. This man, this woman is a devil. And you, you complain all the time. And you are thinking by complaining against him or her, you will change the situation. When Paul tells you there are principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age, Spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, you must also understand that while these things are going on, you are at an advantage. Why? Exactly. Because you are seated together with him. If you have read your scripture, far above principalities. Oh my God. Hey. So though, even though these things are happening, and we know they are real, Jesus said, chill. Don't be perturbed. Because where I'm seated, there's yet below me. I've been raised far. It's not just raised above, or do? Far. My God. Far above principalities. And powers, and thrones, and dominions. So you were ahead of the devil. You were ahead of him. The problem is we don't stay seated. By seated, I mean resting. We are not resting in the security of the finished work. So we get off and, say, and come back and say, oh, let, let, and then you're in trouble. The enemy don't, he, 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 all he has to do is just get you to not, be seated. That's all he needs to do. And then once he does that, it's over. Verse 13. You, you know, that verse 12 is so real. And you can tell that in your human experience as you travel from place to place in the United States. Easy. So you go to Mississippi. And I hope there's no Mississippian listening. I, I don't mean that in the Oh man, I hope I don't get in trouble with that. But anyway, so you go, you go to a rural town, Mississippi. And you are a beautiful person. You are not wonderful, beautiful. You know the difference? B for black, W for white. So you are beautiful, you are not wonderful. You are stopped by the policeman at 9 p.m. in rural Mississippi, and you are Mr. Beautiful. You're on your own. Because there's something about the principality over the area that does not understand equality. 
that does not understand oneness. You follow what I'm saying? So the principalities in that area tells everybody one mind is more superior to another mind. So you go to a place like Las Vegas. And it's like, I don't even know how to describe that. Everybody's just happy-go-lucky. I mean, everybody's wide open. I mean, <laughs> from the, every hotel, every street corner, people are just doing crazy, wild things. If you are depressed when you go to Las Vegas, you got happy. <laughs> Unless you lose the money in the casino, then you got, you got money. No, but seriously, it's crazy. It's crazy. Okay, another true story. Japan. Japanese are hard to reach for the gospel. Extremely hard. Missionaries labored there for years. In 15 years, if you get one person born again, you're fortunate. Strong goal is strong. The same Japanese is living in Brazil. Wide open. Same nationality, but just chain location. I mean, getting born again just like that. Why? The principality. I'm saying that so you can understand the issue of principalities. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. Just get dressed, the Bible says. Just get dressed. Put on whole armor. And once you've done that, your, your part is finished. Just stand. Stand therefore. So now he's beginning to tell us the armor. Having guarded your waist with truth. So the first weapon in your conflict is truth. I would like to hope that everybody here in this room speaks the truth. Some of you have worked in the White House, therefore you cannot speak the truth again. I'm talking about this current White House. This current White House cannot stand against the White House of the devil. <laughs> you can forget it. No, but, but seriously, on a serious note. On a serious note. When the Bible says stand, you must understand the implication is we are defending territory that already belongs to us. Like the laws in Florida, stand your ground. This is a defensive posture. I'm not fighting to gain position. I'm fighting to keep position. So the implication is, you are fighting from victory. You are not fighting for victory. All right. yes. I don't know if I got it. This is truth. This is why it says the first thing you do, put on truth. If you put on truth and you are, you are begging God for victory, you are already lost. Because you are no longer in truth. You are not in truth. Jesus did the fighting. He spoiled, the Bible says, principalities. He's already done that. He made an open show of them publicly. He's already done. So my job and your job is not to fight to gain ground, but to fight to keep the ground you've already been given. So you are not fighting for 
victory, you are fighting from victory. Do you see the difference? And therefore, that belt of truth, it, it must convey that. You can't get in prayer and begging God, God, please heal me. What? Are you kidding me? What I did 2,000 years ago, what do you think that was? A joke? I was wounded for your transgression. I was bruised for your iniquity. The price for your peace was upon me. By my stripes, you were, past tense, healed. Truth says, I am healed. I'm commanding my healing to manifest. Big difference. Big difference. Big difference. Big difference. I'm not begging God to supply my needs. Once you start praying those traditional religious prayers, you've lost the battle. The enemy is not tight. If the key was just one lock, now it does it twice. Now I've got this one. Bah, bah. Because he knows you don't, you don't know your right. You don't know what belongs to you. No. Jesus was made poor that out of his poverty I may be rich. Father, I thank you for your riches that's come to me. Open my eyes to see and behold the wonderful things you've made provision for me. Truth. Truth that is established based on the word of God. That's the first thing. So all of these weapons are defensive, uh, defensive except one. Next one. Oh, no, no. Go back to verse 14. I'm sorry. Having gathered your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate. Right here. To cover your torso. Righteousness. In other words, the Bible says, he made him to be sin. Him that did no sin. That he, Jesus, might become the righteousness of God. No, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Right standing. So number one, I have truth on. Number two, I have right standing. I'm confident that no matter what has happened, I'm in right standing with God. You let the devil know that. I'm a child of God, born again by the power of the Spirit, washed by his blood. In favor with God, loved by God, cherished by God, delighted by God, the apple of his eyes. Let him know all of that. Because once you are not sure of your position, you become to waver, you start to waver. Next verse. And having shut your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's Jesus. And the issue here is when you're in battle, you want to make sure your feet is well anchored. So you don't slip and fall. So the Bible says you shut your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Jesus is at peace. He's the anchor. He's the one that connects you. He's the one that gives you firm grip. That's the word. Firm grip. So that you're not moved or tendency to have to fall. Next one. I know we need to go. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. You know what the fiery darts are? The doubts, the temptations, the proposals, the suggestions that the enemy is bringing to you. Ah, don't let me go there. I was going to, yeah. But, but you, know, you know what those things can be. So the shield of faith. Say, no, no, no not here. No, uh-uh. No way. No. Your shield of faith is a defensive thing to make sure there's no penetration.